This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. While this is the second Sunday in Advent, I do believe that this would be appropriate for us to have a classic homily from St. Bernard of Clairvaux, where he talks about the beginning of Advent. St. Bernard of Clairvaux is very underappreciated, I think, in our time and Frankly, a lot of those of us here on YouTube don't talk about him much, so I'm going to just give you some of his wisdom here on Advent. He has a, There's a whole collection of his sermons out there on Advent, and this one is his first sermon for Advent on the Advent of our Lord and its six circumstances by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Today, we celebrate the beginning of Advent. The name of this great annual commemoration is sufficiently familiar to us, its meaning may not be so well known. When the unhappy children of Eve had abandoned the pursuit of things true and salutary, they gave themselves up to the search for those that are fleeting and perishable. To whom shall we liken the men of this generation? Or to what shall we compare them, seeing they are unable to tear themselves from earthly and carnal consolations, or disentangle their minds from such trammels? They resemble the shipwrecked who are in danger of being overwhelmed by the waters, and who may be seen catching eagerly at whatever they first grasp, how frail soever it may be. And if anyone strive to rescue them, they are wont to seize and drag him down with them, so that not infrequently the rescuer is involved with them in one common destruction. Thus the children of the world perish miserably while following after transitory things, and neglecting those which are solid and enduring, cleaving to which they might save their souls. Of truth, not of vanity, it is said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See St. John chapter 8, verse 32. Do you therefore, to whom as little one God has revealed things hidden from the wise and prudent, turn your thoughts with earnestness to those which are truly desirable, and diligently meditate on this coming of our Lord? See St. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Consider who he is that comes, whence he comes, to whom he comes, for what end he comes, when he comes, and in what manner he comes. This is undoubtedly a most useful and praiseworthy curiosity, for the church would not so devoutly celebrate the season of Advent if there were not some great mystery hidden therein. Wherefore, in the first place, let us with the apostle consider in astonishment and in admiration how great he is who comes. According to the testimony of Gabriel, he is the Son of the Most High, and consequently a co-equal with him. Nor is it lawful to think that the Son of God is other than co-equal with his Father. He is co-equal in majesty. He is co-equal in dignity. Who will deny the sons of princes are princes, and the sons of kings kings? But how is it that the three persons whom we believe and confess and adore in the Most High Trinity, it was not the Father nor the Holy Ghost, but the Son that became man? I imagine this was not without cause. But who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? See the letter to the Romans, chapter 11, verse 34. Not without some most deep counsel of the blessed Trinity was it decreed that the Son should become incarnate. If we consider the cause of our exile, we may perchance be able to comprehend in some degree how fitting it was that our deliverance should be chiefly accomplished by the Son. Lucifer, who rose brightly as the morning star because he attempted to usurp a similitude with the Most High, and it was thought robbery in him to equal himself with God, 
and equality which was the son's by right was cast down from heaven and ruined for the father was zealous for the glory of the son and seemed by this act to say vengeance is mine i will repay and instantly i saw satan as lightning falling from heaven see the gospel of luke chapter 10 verse 18 dust and ashes why art thou proud if god spared not pride in his angels how much less will he tolerate it in thee innate corruption satan had committed no overt act he had not but consented to a thought of pride. Yet in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he was irreparably rejected because, as the evangelist said, he stood not in truth. See the Gospel of St. John, chapter 8, verse 44. Fly pride, my brethren, I most earnestly beseech you. Pride is the beginning of all sin. See Ecclesiasticus, chapter 10, verse 15. And how quickly did it darken and overshadow with eternal obscurity Lucifer, the most bright and beautiful of the heavenly spirits. And from it, not only an angel, but the first of angels, transform him into a hideous devil. Wherefore, envying man's happiness, he brought forth in him the evil which he had conceived in himself by persuading man that if he should eat of the forbidden tree, he would become as God, having a knowledge of good and evil wretch what dost thou promise when thou knowest that the son of god has the key of knowledge yea and is himself the key of david that shutteth and no man openeth see the apocalypse chapter 3 verse 7 that in him are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of god see the letter to the colossians chapter 2 verse 3 wouldst thou then wickedly steal them away to give them to men you see my brethren how true is the sentence of our lord the devil is a liar and the father of lies See St. John chapter 8, verse 44. He was a liar in saying, I will be like unto the Most High. See Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4. And he was the father of lies when he breathed his spirit of falsity into man. You will be as gods. See Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. And wilt thou, man, seeing the thief, run with him. See Psalm 40, uh, 49, verse 18. You have heard, my brethren, what has been read this night from Isaiah. The prophet says to the Lord, Thy princes are faithless companions of thieves, or, as another verse has it, disobedient companions of thieves. See Isaiah chapter 1, verse 23. In truth, Adam and Eve were disobedient companions of thieves, for by the counsel of the serpent, or rather of the devil in the serpent, they tried to seize upon what belonged by birthright to the Son of God. Nor did the Father overlook the injury, for the Father loveth the Son. He immediately took revenge on that same man, and let his hand fall heavily on us all. For in Adam all have sinned, and in his sentence of condemnation we have shared. What then did the Son do, saying his Father so zealous for his glory, and for his sake sparing none of his creatures? Behold, he says, on my account my Father has ruined his creatures. The first of the angels aspired to my throne of sovereignty, and had followers who believed in him. And instantly my Father's zeal was heavily revenged on him, striking him and all his adherents with an affliction, with a dire chastisement. Man, too, attempted to steal from me the knowledge which belongs to me alone, and neither doth my father show him mercy, nor doth his eye spare him. He had made two noble orders, sharing his reason, capable of participating in his beatitude, angels and men. But behold, on my account he hath ruined a multitude of his angels and the entire race of men. Therefore, that they may know that I love my father, he shall receive back through me what in a certain way he seems to have lost through me. It is on my account this storm has arisen. Take me and cast me into the sea. See Jonas chapter 1, verse 12. All are envious of me. Behold, I come, and will exhibit myself to them in such a guise as that whosoever shall wish may become like to me. Whatsoever soever I shall do, they may imitate, so that their envy shall be made good and profitable to them. The angels we know sinned through malice, not through ignorance and frailty. 
Wherefore, as they were unwilling to repent, they must of necessity perish, for the love of the Father and the honor of the King demand judgment. For this cause he created men from the beginning, that they might fill those lost places, and repair the ruins of the heavenly Jerusalem. For he knew the pride of Moab, that he is exceedingly proud. See Isaiah chapter 16, verse 6. And that his pride would never seek the remedy of repentance, nor consequently of pardon. After man's fall, however, he created no other creature in this place, thus intimating that man should yet be redeemed, and that he who had been supplanted by another's malice might still by another's charity be redeemed. Be it so, dear Lord, I beseech thee, be pleased to deliver me, for I am weak. Like Joseph of old, I was stolen away from my country, and here, without any fault, was cast into a dungeon. Yet I am not wholly innocent, but innocent compared with him who seduced me. He deceived me with a lie. Let the truth come, that falsehood may be discovered, and that I may know the truth, and that the truth may make me free. But to gain the freedom, I must renounce the falsehood when discovered, and adhere to the known truth. Otherwise the temptation would not be human, nor the sin a human sin, but diabolical obstinacy. To persevere in evil is the act of the devil, and those who persevere in evil after his example deservedly perish with him. Behold, you have heard who he is that comes. Consider now whence and to whom he comes. He comes from the heart of God the Father, to the womb of a virgin mother. He comes from the highest heaven, to this low earth, that we whose conversation is now on earth may have him for our most desirable companion. For where can it be well with us without him? And where will, if he be present? What have I in heaven? And besides thee, what do I share upon earth? Thou art the God of my heart, and the God that is my portion forever. And that though I should walk in the midst of the shadow of death, I, I shall fear no, no evil, if only thou art with me. But here I see that our Lord descends not only to earth, but even to hell, not as one bound, but as free among the dead, as light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Wherefore his soul was not left in hell, nor did his holy body on earth see corruption. For Christ that descended is the same also that ascended, that he might fill all things, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil. And elsewhere we read, He hath exalted as a giant to run his way. His going forth is from the highest servants, and his circuits even to the end thereof. See Psalm 18, chapter 7. Well might St. Paul cry out, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is sitting, at the right hand of God. See Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. In vain would the apostle labor to raise our hearts upwards if he did not teach us that the author of our salvation is sitting in heaven. But what follows? The matter here is indeed abundant in the extreme, but our limited time does not admit of a lengthened development. By considering who he is that comes, we see his supreme and ineffable majesty, and by contemplating whence he comes, we behold the great highway clearly laid out unto us. The prophet Isaiah says, Behold, the name of the Lord cometh from afar. See Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27. By reflecting whether he comes, he sees his inestimable and inconceivable condescension in his descending from highest heavens to abide with us in this miserable prison house. Who can doubt that there was some grand cause, powerful enough to move so sovereign a majesty, to come from afar and condescend to enter a place so unworthy of him as this world of ours? The cause was in truth great. It was his immense mercy, his multiplied compassion, his abundant charity. For what end was me believe that he came? This question is the next in order to be examined. Nor will the search demand as much labor, for the end of the purpose of his coming is proclaimed by his works and words. To seek after the one sheep of the hundred that had strayed, he hastened from the mountains. For our sake he came down from heaven, that his mercies and his wonders might be openly proclaimed to the children of men. Our wonderful condescension of God in this search, a wonderful dignity of man who is thus sought. If he should wish to glory in this dignity, 
it would not be imputed to him as folly. Not that he need think of anything of himself, but let him rejoice that he who made him should set so high a value on him. For all the riches and glory of the world, all that is desirable therein, is far below this glory. Nay, can bear no comparison with it. Lord, what is man that thou should magnify him, and why settest thou thy heart upon him? See Job chapter 7, verse 17. I still further desire to know why he should come to us, and not we rather to go to him. For the need was on our side, and it is not usual for the rich to go to the poor, though otherwise willing to assist them. It was indeed our place to go forward to him, but there stood a twofold impediment in the way, for our eyes were heavy, and he dwelt in light inaccessible. We lay as paralytics on our beds and could not raise ourselves to the divine elevation. Wherefore, this most benign Savior and treater of souls descended to us from his lofty throne and tempered his brightness to the weakness of our sight. He clothed himself with his most glorious and spotless body, as with the shade of a lantern, thus attempering to us his splendor. This is that bright and shining cloud upon which the Lord was to descend upon Egypt, as the prophet Isaiah foretold. See Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. It is now fitting that we should consider the time of our Lord's coming. He came, as you know, not in the beginning, nor in the midst of time, but in the end of it. This was not no unsuitable choice, but a truly wise dispensation of his infinite wisdom, that he might afford to help when he saw it was most needed. Truly it was evening, and the day was far spent. See St. Luke chapter 24, verse 29. The Son of Justice had well nigh set, but a faint ray of his light and heat remained on earth. The light of divine knowledge was very small, and as iniquity abounded, the fervor of charity had grown cold. No angel appeared, no prophet spoke. The angelic vision and the prophetic spirit alike had passed away, both hopelessly baffled by the exceeding obduracy and obstinacy of mankind. Then it was that the Son of God said, Behold, I come. See the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 7. And while all things were in quite si quiet silence, and the night was in the midst of her course, the Almighty world Word leapt down from heaven from thy royal throne. See Wisdom, chapter 18, verses 14 and 15. Of this the Apostle speaks, when the fullness of time was come, God sent his Son. See the letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4. The plenitude of affluence of things temporal had brought on the oblivion and penury of things eternal. Fitly, therefore, did the eternal God come when things of time were reigning supreme. To pass over other points, such was a temporal peace at the birth of Christ, that by the edict of one man the whole world was enrolled. You have now heard who he is that comes, whence, whether, and to whom he comes. This cause likewise and the time of his coming are known to you. One point is yet to be considered, namely the way by which he came. This must be diligently examined, that we may, as is fitting, go forth to meet him. As he once came visibly in the body to work our salvation in the midst of the earth, so does he come daily and visibly and in the spirit to work the salvation of each individual soul as it is written. The spirit before our face, Christ is the Lord. And that we might know this spiritual advent to be hidden, it is said, under his shadow we shall live among the Gentiles. See Lamentations chapter 4, verse 20. Wherefore, if the infirm cannot go far to meet this, this great restorer, it is at least to be coming they should endeavor to raise their heads and lift themselves a little to greet their Savior. For this, O man, you are not required to cross the sea, to penetrate the clouds, to scale the mountaintops. No lofty way is set before you. Turn within thyself to meet thy God, for the word is nigh in thy mouth and in thy heart. Meet him by compunction of heart and by confession of mouth, or at least go forth from the corruption of a sinful conscience, for it is not becoming that the author of purity should enter there. It is delightful to contemplate the manner of his visible coming, for his ways are beautiful, and all his paths are peace. See Proverbs chapter 3, verse 17. 
Behold, says the spouse of Canticle of, of the Canticles, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. See Canticle number two, verse eight. You see him coming, O beautiful one, but his previous lying down you could not see, for you said, Show me, O thou that whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou liest. See Canticle one, chapter six. He lay feeding his angels in his endless eternity with the vision of his glorious, unchanging beauty. But know, O beautiful one, that that vision has become wonderful to thee. It is high, and thou canst not reach it. Nevertheless, behold, he hath gone forth from his holy place. And he that had lain feeding his angels hath undertaken to restore us. We shall see him coming as our food, whom we were not able to behold while he was feeding his angels in his repose. Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. The mountains and hills we may consider to be the patriarchs and prophets, and we may see his leaping and skipping in the book of his genealogy. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob. See St. Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. From the mountains came forth the root of Jesse, as you will find from the prophet Isaiah. There shall come forth a rod out of the root of Jesse, and a flower shall rise up out of his root, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. See Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. The same prophet speaks yet more plainly. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is interpreted God with us. See Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He who is first styled of flowers afterwards called Emmanuel, and in the rod is named the Virgin. We must reserve for another day further consideration of this sublime mystery, as there is ample material for another sermon, especially as today has been rather long. Hope you found that useful. I hope you have a blessed Advent, and I hope you take me up on the traditional fasting and abstinence that goes with Advent, for this is a penitential time of preparation for the coming of the Lord. Those sorts of seasons, as we prepare for our Lord to come or be resurrected, are usually tied to fasting and abstinence. Those practices have sadly gone the wayside in our time, and it is our duty as Catholics to, you know, do penance for our sins and the sins of others. So, Offer your penances this season for the sins of the hierarchy and for your own sins. Work out your salvation, as the as the as Scripture says. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. This is a very Catholic thing to do. Anyway, thank you for listening. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria. <laughs>